Welcome to another episode of Gray Zone Radio. I'm your host and the editor of thegrayzone.com, Max Blumenthal. This week, we're going to talk about failed congressional efforts to force a withdrawal of U.S. troops from Somalia, a strategically significant nation in the Horn of Africa, where, unbeknownst to most Americans, the U.S. has as many as 900 to 1,000 special forces troops backing up a deeply unpopular president. We'll also discuss the ouster of Tucker Carlson, what it means for anti-war politics, and why so many leftists who pronounce themselves to be anti-imperialists or anti-war figures are cheering on the ouster of one of the country's most prominent opponents of the Ukraine proxy war. But first we turn to France and go to Paris where our correspondent, Jeremy Lafredo, has been covering ongoing and extremely intense protests against French President Emmanuel Macron's neoliberal agenda, where he is imposing in undemocratic fashion pension reforms, forcing the French people to work more years than ever before. Jeremy zeroed in on a group of high school students who are at the forefront of these protests and showed in disturbing detail the brutal repression that they've faced at the hands of France's national police, while Macron junkets around the world celebrating democracy, freedom, and what he calls individual rights. Let's take a listen to Jeremy's video report, which you can see in full at thegrayzone.com. The presidency of France's Emmanuel Macron has been characterized by his loyalty to financial markets and the global ruling class. Macron has used his political power to usher in a new era of French privatization. He's privatized various public services. He's cut and scrapped various pension plans. He's pushed through budget reforms that eliminate scholarship and unemployment programs. And his administration has given unprecedented tax cuts to tech companies in order to invite more French foreign investment. The French electorate, of which only 18% and 20% voted for Macron, respectively, in 2017 and 2020, have strongly opposed these neoliberal economic reforms, especially in the face of rising French poverty. Macron's latest move was to force the French people to dedicate an additional two years of their lives to work in order to receive their pension. The retirement age was hiked from 62 years old to 64 years old. Macron's measure is opposed by much of the French people. Some surveys have opposition as high as 90%. French workers see the retirement hike as another neoliberal economic policy that benefits profits at the expense of the French working class, further degrading their social system. I traveled to Paris to better understand the protesters' demands and how Macron's economic policies were affecting them. They see the retirement hike as another neoliberal economic policy that benefits profits at the expense of workers and further degrades the social system. Macron's reform was also opposed by the French parliament. 
So much so, the Macron administration invoked Article 49.3, which the French people refer to as an anti-democratic weapon of the Fifth Republic of France. 49.3 allows Macron to pass laws without any vote or approval whatsoever. Workers' strikes of historic size and duration have taken place in response to Macron's reforms, the most recent of which was pushed through via anti-democratic means. But not just adults and workers, but also students and teenagers. While in Paris covering the demonstrations, I found myself in front of a public high school where students had blockaded their school's entrances in protest of the government's economic policies. The students' plan was to blockade the school during the entire morning. The school would then act as a rendezvous point for other high schoolers, and then they'd march together downtown to join the older and union demonstrators. Many of them had their faces covered with t-shirts and COVID masks because of the surveillance cameras around the school. The students explained that the most recent protests in France have been met with harsh, violent repression by the French National Police. It's not only about pension reforms, but the entirety of Macron's economic policies and the anti-democratic precedent set by invoking 49.3. They explained the violent nature of some of the protests is justified because, as they see it, the Macron government's policies are violence aimed at the French people. Well, he doesn't respect democracy at all. Like he used the uh, 49.3, uh, which like makes that uh, there is no vote and uh, it's totally not democratic. And like 80% of the uh, French people don't want this reform about the pensions. But it's not about only the pensions. It's it's about um, the fact that if they first uh, attack our pensions, what are they gonna do next? And we gotta protect that, we gotta protect our social, uh, our social system, and we have to defend uh, the fact that the people is still king in a country, yeah. If we don't defend that, like, it's gonna just be um, a dictature. In a protest, the, the unions didn't work, like, they had a meeting, but the government uh, didn't uh, let anything happen about the pensions. So, personally, I think not everybody thinks that, but I think that violence is legitimate because the government don't listen, even if we protest pacifically. We're all strongly against 49.3, which was an anti-democratic way to pass unfair pension reform which will force us, high schoolers, to work from the age of 16 until we are about 64 years old. But for other jobs, it won't be 64, it will be 70 years old. So it's exhausting. For example, for the more physical jobs like construction workers or plumbers, work until 64 is just not possible. So we're here to support the garbage men and for all the striking workers. Here we have teachers who are on strike. We have school aides who are on strike. So we block the school and we show our support. Not the hatred, but the intensity and the, the anger, the anger of the people. He, he did it totally on his accord and on the, uh, uh, totally on his, um, on his uh, power. And um, the people did, ha didn't have a right to choose. Yeah, so it's, a, it's kind of a bummer. But uh, we're riding and we're hoping to, to make it work, yeah. As the morning went on, more students from all over Paris marched and met at the high school. Every time more students came down the street, they all cheered. This student was wearing a mask mocking Bernard Arnault, the French fashion billionaire. Graffiti was painted onto school desks and supplies that were being used to blockade the school. 
This says, I don't want to die at work. As military police drove by on their way to the larger demonstration downtown, students booed and spit on their vans. They don't care about the people, they don't care about the opinion of the people. It's the main problem. Like, like there was the yellow jackets, they didn't listen. And, and they need to listen. Like, it's, it should be the government that is afraid of the people, not the people that is afraid of the government. But that's what is happening with the protest. Like, the cops are fucking violent. Uh, I, I, I got a friend who got shot with a rubber bullet in the head, then uh, beat up by the police. Yeah. And I myself have been arrested very violently in a protest. And I know people who got arrested. The cops are not here to keep order. They are here. They are here just to, to protect the government. What do you think about Macron? Without being mean and to keep my little insults to myself, I think he's someone who's full of himself. He's a nihilist. Macron values capital over workers, capital over the proletariat. And so he puts everyone aside for the benefit of companies in the French stock exchange. The truth is that there there are many things which the French people are angry about. There's recent inflation, because of it a lot of people need to be very cautious with their spending on groceries and just in general. At the same time, the French corporations have made huge profits in just a few years. Truth is, the French government gives no gifts to the people, only to the rich. The students started fires in the street and put up roadblocks so police would have a hard time sneaking up from behind as they marched. Once the afternoon came, the students began to march downtown and meet the rest of the city. On their way there, the students destroyed banks and the offices of insurance companies and credit unions. Whenever I tried to film them, I was promptly stopped. Despite this, delivery workers and restaurant workers cheered from their delivery trucks and expressed solidarity with the protesters. The rail union, the airline workers union, the electrical workers union, the bus drivers union, right and left populist political parties, everyone was present in front of the French Capitol building. And so were hundreds of militarized police, just waiting to use their tear gas and batons. Protesters marched towards the French parliament, where they were met by a police wall. Protesters then attempted to march down the street which was also not allowed, as they were met with rubber bullets and tear gas. The protesters decided that instead of a street, they'll go to Bastille, a famous square in Paris commemorating the revolution of 1830. Despite the protesters not blocking traffic, riot police charged, beating some of the demonstrators. Later that night, demonstrators, upset they weren't even allowed in the park, 
shot fireworks at police. Police ended up grabbing someone. Whether or not this person had anything to do with the fireworks is impossible to know, even for the police. They dragged this person by the arms and legs into a van as he screamed for Allah. One of the teenagers from earlier in the day was walking down one of the narrow streets in Paris. An undercover officer grabbed him by the neck and pinned him up against a wall. Trying to document this, I got closer, only to have police shine their lights in my camera and then hit me in the face when I didn't back up fast enough. <laughs> In France, I documented and interviewed dozens of interesting people from all walks of life. The main issue that acts as the glue keeping these demonstrators together is their problem with the growing neoliberal economic policies and undemocratic governance of President Emmanuel Macron, which they see as destroying the French lifestyle and making it more similar to the economic system of the United States, where everything is privatized, healthcare isn't free, and people work until they're dead. Reporting from France for The Gray Zone, I'm Jeremy Lafredo. Well, you've been listening to Jeremy Lafredo's report from the front lines of the protests against Emmanuel Macron's neoliberal agenda in France. To see that full report, check out thegrayzone.com. Just search for our YouTube channel. We will now turn to the ouster of Fox News host Tucker Carlson, a right-wing figure to be sure, who's representative of the America First movement and the phenomenon of Donald Trump, but who also has professed strongly anti-war views around Ukraine, who is actually personally convinced Donald Trump to avoid military confrontation with Iran, and who, while espousing anti-China views, has been strongly opposed to a U.S. military confrontation over Taiwan. Why was Tucker Carlson ousted by the Murdoch family? What does this mean for the future of anti-war politics when this host has provided a platform for myself, for my colleague Aaron Matei, who participated in this discussion with me, and for many other anti-war figures? And should leftists who pronounce anti-war views or who claim to be anti-imperialists celebrate Tucker's ouster 
When practically every other host on cable news supports every war that the U.S. is currently involved in or plans to be involved in. Take a listen to my, con my conversation with Aaron and decide for yourself. The, the top rated cable news host being just out of the blue ousted from his own show and told, I think, just a few minutes before it was announced publicly and not given a chance to do one final show to say goodbye to his audience, just Tucker Carlson just ousted. And a lot of speculation as to what really happened. And that's all we can really do at this point is speculate. But, you know, one factor that I keep coming back to is it's just a fact that for all the disagreements that, you know, people like us have with Tucker Carlson on many issues, it's just a fact that on cable news, he was the only place that was airing anti-war voices consistently, uh, whether it's the war in Ukraine or the proxy war in Syria, that was a consistent source of anti-war views. And people, people don't like it when we say that, but it's just true. It's, it's not, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't mean that Tucker Carlson was right about everything. And again, there's so many things where I vehemently disagree with him, but on, the, on these core issues, he stood apart. And I have to, uh, guess or speculate that that was probably a factor in him being fired so abruptly. It's obvious. It's so obvious that the content of his show that cut against the grain of every other cable news host, especially Sean Hannity, who follows him, whose ratings are tanking now that Tucker's off. It's obvious when he's the top rated host, it's obvious that that was the reason that was what caused him to come into conflict with Murdoch's sons who were like centrists um, and that there was enormous pressure. Now, advertiser pressure is always a factor. I don't know why everyone, everyone is discounting that. First, there was advertiser pressure on Tucker that caused a lot of advertisers to drop out because, you know, he was pro-Trump. He was, um, you know, pushing the line on a lot of issues that where we totally disagree with him on. And then Mike Lindell, my pillow guy comes in and fills the void. But that is not, Mike Lindell is the top advertiser on Fox News, but he's not the only major advertiser. And many of those who advertise on Fox News are big pharma. And Tucker was also upsetting big pharma interests when he broke away from the COVID consensus and started harshly criticizing the mRNA vaccine, the lockdowns and everything else. And if we look at, um, you know, who actually is sponsoring Fox News beyond Mike Lindell. It's, uh, as I said, it's Big Pharma, GlaxoSmithKline, Novartis, and then BlackRock, which owns a lot of the pharmaceutical companies, are right behind my pillow. Then the largest institutional owner is Vanguard. They have a 7% stake. BlackRock just increased its stake. They're the two largest owners of Pfizer. They're the two largest owners of Johnson and Johnson. They own over four, like 15% of Fox. So they also own, they own, sorry, they own 15% of Johnson and Johnson and they own 13% of Moderna. So the idea that Big Pharma wasn't interested in this or the Pentagon, I mean, Politico has a piece out. I don't have it right in front of me, um, defense, Department of Defense officials 
celebrating Tucker's ouster because they were sick of him. What they say, uh, what did they say? We're sick of him bagging on our military night after night. So, yeah, they portrayed it as like Tucker was like uh, insulting the rank and file. When yeah. really, actually, they also actually admitted that he's popular with the rank and file. And what they don't like, and here, here's the article, is uh, that he was criticizing the proxy war in Ukraine. That's what really this is all about. There it is. I mean, that's just an amazing headline in itself. Like, good riddance. Pentagon officials cheer. Tucker, like, the fact that you have the Pentagon openly celebrating the ouster of a journalist, like of a, of a television host, it really says something. And, you know, the way this article frames it is they want to suggest it's because Tucker was critical of, like, the Pentagon's diversity policies and all that stuff. You think Pentagon leaders care that a cable news host is critic is making fun of their diversity policies or whatever those are? No. He was uh, pushing back against the consensus on the Ukraine proxy war and questioning constantly with uh, his monologues and his guests the need to pour tens of billions of dollars in this proxy war in Ukraine. Of course, that's what they're upset about. And that's why they can't contain their glee now that he's out. Good riddance. And, um, you know, I, I hope people who uh, are who try to just dismiss Tucker Carlson's anti-war views or his uh, I shouldn't say anti-war views, but his, his his coverage that was critical of the proxy war in Ukraine. I hope they look at that and reflect on like maybe they should think maybe they should reflect the fact that they're in lockstep with the Pentagon here in cheering the ouster of a host and what that maybe means about about their stance. Because, again, for all the things to disagree with him on, it's just a fact he consistently aired anti-war voices on the proxy war in Ukraine, no matter what his own motives were. I don't care what his own personal motives are. I mean, yeah. um, even if you know, like the, you know, the criticism of is, OK, he was only critical of the proxy war in Ukraine because he wants us to fight a war with China. And yeah, he was definitely a hawk on China. But that doesn't actually negate the fact that he was airing and allowing on people who were very critical of the war and airing factual critiques that weren't allowed anywhere else. And also, whenever it came down to it, he actually expressed criticism of the Biden administration when they were warmongering with China. And he also had guests on, like Jimmy Dore and Doug McGregor, who all openly opposed war with China. So even there, this narrative of him that he was a China hawk, it's, uh, there's elements of truth to it, but it misses the fact that he allowed on voices that dissented from that, and even himself sometimes pushed back on the warmongering when it comes to China and Taiwan. We have a comment from Danny Haifong. The advertising angle is compelling as is Murdoch's attraction to DeSantis, even for, even controlling for politics, it's obvious Tucker Carlson was too independent for Fox Corporation. And, you know, Danny would be someone who would take extreme issue with a lot of Tucker's stances on China. But I think, and Tucker was definitely someone I would consider to be anti-China or at least anti-China system. And someone who has issued warnings about China influencing the United States and U.S. politics and the U.S. system that, like, Fuel, definitely fuel the new Cold War narrative, but it's it's it, it's complex, and we're going to get into that. Um, I think it's important if you had a relationship with his show because you've been on the show, like we have. You've been on it more than I have. I went on once to denounce RussiaGate from a left anti-imperialist point of view back in 2017. It was like the first time anyone got to do that on national TV. And what I said is they're just setting the stage for a giant war. And I've been proven right, unfortunately. Um, we had Anya Parampil go on to, um, at Tucker's urging, denounce the coup in Venezuela, a coup against a socialist-oriented country. And to Trump, denounce Trump's the coup. Yeah. Trump's coup. 
And that got directly to Trump. I mean, we know that Trump responded to that and saw that. And then uh, Anya came back on to denounce the junta, the coup regime that Hillary Clinton brought in in Honduras. Um, and to address how the migration crisis from Honduras is really the result of U.S. regime change operations and foreign policy. And that, you know, this is something that I think right wingers needed to understand better. So she, she was providing important context. And, you know, Tucker invited me on many other times when I couldn't make it to talk about how harmful NATO was to the United States. But at every point I was presenting a what I consider to be an anti-war, anti-imperialist imperialist analysis. And you were too, Aaron, you played a lot of those clips in your segment co -host, or guest hosting for Jimmy this week. And I think that's important to understand. And it's also important for people if they want to celebrate Tucker's ouster from an anti-war angle that they actually have to have had watched his show, consumed it regularly. And I don't think any of them did. Yeah. You know, if you go back to your clip from that was what, 2017, when you were on about Russiagate, that was like this, the June or July 2017. So relatively early on in Russiagate. One of the things you warned about is that Russiagate was going to be used, repurposed to attack the left, to attack a Bernie Sanders style candidate, which is exactly what happened. And people who don't appreciate the opportunity to say stuff like that are then basically saying that we should cede the cable news space entirely to pro-Russiagate, pro-war views, and not take the opportunity to warn about how this is not just dangerous for the world, but also just a, you know, really, really bad for the left. And we weren't allowed to say that on any of the leftist shows, not only in like the, you know, nominally leftist shows on MSNBC, like, you know, back then Chris Hayes was sort of branded as like the progressive voice on MSNBC, which of course is now like a bygone memory. It doesn't pretend anymore. But even on, again, like the establishment left-wing shows like Democracy Now!, we weren't allowed on those shows to make that point either. The only place we could say it was on the show of this uh, right-wing host, Tucker Carlson, who made space for voices like us over many years and over many issues, not just on Russiagate, but uh, then uh, the Ukraine proxy war. When that broke out. And also on the Syria dirty war, which everybody else either whitewashes or ignores. And again, the fact that you can go and just dismiss all that you must be saying that you don't think the Syria dirty war is important. And internally, I think that position, uh, accordingly, I think that position actually internalizes some um, hegemony right there and accepts hegemony that we have the right to spend billions of dollars on a dirty war in Syria. And it's not it's someone who actually covers it. It doesn't matter. It's inconsequential. It's not worth acknowledging. Same with the other examples you mentioned of the coup in Venezuela. So, yes, Tucker Carlson personally, I think, expressed some views that I found to be very vile, like about immigrants, the way he talked about them, the way he talked about certain individual politicians, even the ones I disagree with, like the squad. I didn't like it. But uh, hegemony and supremacy can be expressed in different ways. And if you're dismissing somebody who actually singularly covers dirty wars and coups in uh, whether it's Syria or Venezuela, I think you're internalizing some acceptance of hegemony there as well. Well, it's not strategic. I mean, if you are part of the tiny anti-war movement in the U.S., whether you're left or right, you just don't have the luxury of choo carefully choosing your national platform because every other host is attacking you, the position you represent. They're calling you a Russian asset. They're undermining you. They're discrediting you in the eyes of the entire public. And you have no you don't have the luxury. That's why I would take every chance I got to go on RT America if they because they gave me also a national platform at one time. They were broadcasting 
on cable TV that anyone could access. Um, so it's not strategic. It's actually kind of this, it really helps me understand better the boutique left that also attacked the Rage Against the War Machine rally because there was a coalition of libertarians and left anti-war forces. When that rally clearly broke through, it helps me better understand the boutique left's attack on Tulsi Gabbard when she came in to disrupt the pro-war consensus among the Democratic primary candidates. They came in and attacked her harshly. Jacobin, the same kind of people that are celebrating Tucker's ouster, supposedly from the anti-war left. And the way they come at him is so dishonest. I want to address a few of these um, attacks that I think contain some factual, some facts about Tucker's background that are like cringeworthy, but uh, are what I, th I think they're intellectually dishonest. And they're coming from people, including people I really respect that I've worked with. Um, this is um, from Alan McLeod and Mint Press. This is an older one that's been going around. And it's about how um, Tucker wanted to be in the CIA when he was younger. You know, his, his father is a huge neocon. He would acknowledge that. Um, and he went to Nicaragua when his dad was involved with the Contras, I think. Um, yeah, Alan is one of the best media critics, left-wing or anti-imperialist media critics around. And he's a great writer. We've published him at The Gray Zone. The thing about that piece is it doesn't say anything about the meaning of Tucker in the current media environment, and it contains from one of the best media critics around no content analysis, absolutely no content analysis, no analysis of what Tucker is actually saying night in and night out when he has a Chiron behind him called that says DC war machine, and he's just hammering the yeah. imperialists, the neocons, and then hosting people like us. Oh, so what is the point of that? It's to keep, it, it's almost like it's to keep uh, leftists away from Tucker so the lines remain clean. But it doesn't accomplish anything when he's being disruptive and providing us a platform. Then we have, um, I don't know if you want to add anything there, but there's a, there were like it's tons of pieces that came out this week from left writers about why I, we should celebrate. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting. I mean, this is where you and I split from other people who we really, really agree with on pretty much everything else. But on this one, I, I yeah, I agree with you that I think there, that there's a blind spot. And I'm all for them condemning his actual views that they don't like. And there's there's plenty, again, that I think is pretty distasteful, um, that I found very offensive, things he said before. But um, to then do that without recognizing that there was some really um, substantive critiques and just uh, allowance for perspectives that were not aired anywhere else on critical issues of war and peace, I think that's really disingenuous. So criticize him all you want, but then criticize him for his actual views. And it's intellectually dishonest to dismiss those areas where, where he was far superior than anything than anything else on cable news. And I would say most leftist media on some issues, not everything yeah. on some issues, but specifically and, on and, really important issues like... On Ukraine, all yeah. elected progressive officials combined, he was yeah. better. And that yeah. is one of the most important issues if you're in the anti-war movement. Um, and if the US fails in Ukraine to achieve its goals, what it considers victory, which is retaking even Crimea, Western hegemony starts to unravel. So I think it's a pretty pivotal issue. Um, so why would you celebrate 
the loss of that, unless you're just going to be open, some people are open about it and they say, well, you know, we're also losing someone who attacks the gender ideology I believe in, or we're also losing someone who says racist things. Um, you know, and if you want to make it about social issues, that would be a more intellectually honest take. Um, but uh, the angle that I see a lot of anti-war people on the left taking, um, including some, you know, and I, <laughs> there's, there's some, I'll, I'll straight up say if I, don't respect a writer or a pundit or a professional sectarian left activist. I'll straight up say it. But I mean, this is from someone who I think, you know, deserves some respect. Branko Marsetic at Jacobin, he's done a great job on Ukraine. Um, but, you know, the tendency here to me, th this, this reflects to me an ultra left tendency and also a slightly unfair interpretation of Tucker's anti-China views because when the beef is about to cook with Taiwan, Tucker has actually taken a line against military confrontation there. So let's just like examine one part of this piece by Branco. He says, as Carlson's coverage of Pelosi's Taiwan visit indicated, even the occasional dovish segment on Tucker Carlson tonight expressing alarm over the risk of provoking Beijing was framed around the need to shore up U.S. military strength when Congress is passing record military budgets and blah, 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 the U.S. military budget is high. So it wasn't good enough. Uh, the segment wasn't good enough for him, and therefore it deserves to be denounced, even though no other host, no other cable host was taking on Nancy Pelosi's extremely provocative, warmongering visit to Taiwan, which has set the, helped set the stage or accelerate the current crisis. So what good is it to denounce that? Let's, I mean, let's take a look at the segment. Was anybody on MSNBC or CNN criticizing Nancy Pelosi for trying to stoke a war with China? I mean, no, of course not. And, uh, and by the way, even the framing, like Tucker Carlson is not an anti-imperialist. Like, no shit. Like, who thinks, who, who, who says he's an anti-imperialist? The point is, does he air anti-imperialist voices that are otherwise shunned and maligned? The answer is yes. So then who cares if he's not personally an anti-imperialist? I don't care about his own personal views. It's a question of what he airs on air, especially when those views are not allowed anywhere else. I mean, it's, it's a question of being having a realistic outlook on politics in the United States. There's The anti-war movement is being actively destroyed by every other host, including Sean Hannity. But there's so little alarm. Do you ever notice that? There's so little alarm among leftists about Sean Hannity's existence. When Hannity, he's completely consistent with the DC Uniparty and with the anti-immigrant, xenophobic, yeah. uh, anti-gay, anti-feminist, anti-abortion Republicans for the most part. Maybe he's not as articulate or compelling as Tucker, but if Sean Hannity was axed, I don't think there'd be this flood of articles justifying it. And it's, it's weird to me. So I, I actually can't pull up the segment because my Wi-Fi is too weak, but it's right below. Um, if you, if I can you, share it, yeah. If you, yeah. you, you want to share it. This yeah. is, yeah. you know, we'll play some Tucker China clips because, I mean, you played a lot of clips of, from him on Ukraine and his views are pretty well known, just demolishing Zelensky night after night. But I find this interesting. This week, with the Black, she's definitely coming, one source told the Wall Street Journal. The only variable is whether she spends the night. 
So Nancy Pelosi goes to Taipei. What's the effect of that? Well, we don't need to guess. The Chinese government has, has said repeatedly and clearly that if Nancy Pelosi lands in Taiwan, it could trigger a global war. Watch. A Chinese spokesperson said there would be serious consequences for the visit over the weekend conducting military drills at sea. If House Speaker Pelosi insists on visiting Taiwan, China will take resolute and strong measures to defend its sovereignty and territorial integrity. Are they bluffing? It doesn't sound like it, actually. A representative of Chinese state media said this, quote, if U.S. fighter jets escort Pelosi's plane into Taiwan, it is an invasion. The Chinese army has the right to forcibly dispel Pelosi's plane and the U.S. fighter jets, including firing warning shots and making tactical movement of obstruction. If ineffective, then shoot them down. Oh, shoot them down. Okay. So the White House naturally was asked about this. We're suddenly on the brink of yet another global war, essentially a nuclear war, because Nancy Pelosi has been given the green light by the White House to fly to Taiwan. So what's the White House view of this? Listen. Uh, an official who is associated with Chinese state media is suggesting that if Speaker Pelosi tries to go to Taiwan, her plane could be shot down. Does the president okay, so we get the point here. Um, but I mean, it's, it's pretty clear. The point he's trying to get across is that dangerous pro-war elements in Washington are pushing for war with Taiwan and that we should be opposed to that. And he was the only cable news host. He's being caricatured in all of these takes as someone who wants war with China. When I think we could go up to the line of that. He is definitely pushing in a new Cold War hysteria on China. At some absolutely. Point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's, I, again, I just don't see when every other cable news host is doing exactly the same thing. Welcome back to Gray Zone Radio. That was my discussion with Aaron Mate about the of the ouster of Fox News host Tucker Carlson. We now turn to the Horn of Africa, where 900 U.S. Special Forces troops are currently engaged in combat and in training Somalia's national army and backing up the deeply unpopular Somali presidency. And we will now discuss efforts by Republican Representative Matt Gates of Florida to force a withdrawal of U.S. troops from Somalia. Gates, of course, faced strong opposition, particularly from congressional Democrats, but also from members of his own party. Let's take a listen to my discussion with my colleague Aaron Mate. On April 27th, the House voted 100 to 1 to 231 against Congressman Matt Gates' resolution to remove all U.S. troops from Somalia. Um, this is at a point when the signs are, when it looks like an escalation is coming in a fight with the Islamist group Al-Shabaab and the Somali government, which is backed up by AFRICOM, which is the U.S. Imperial Military Cat's Paw on the African continent, the U.S. Africa Command. And Somalia's president, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, is essentially on board for the U.S. to continue to have this presence of some 900 troops in fighting al-Shabaab. 
Uh, Gates's resolution failed by almost the same number that his resolution to remove U.S. troops from Syria failed, and it was dedicated to challenging U.S. forever wars abroad. All the co-sponsors of the resolution were Republicans, although there was slightly more Republican than Democratic support. And so now uh, let's listen to Matt Gates's rationale for introducing this resolution. Great honor to participate in this debate with my esteemed colleague, Mr. Meeks of the Foreign Affairs Committee and with a great patriot such as Mr. James of Michigan. I wanna welcome the American people to the second part in a legislative series we are conducting about all of the places on the planet Earth where Congress still believes that 9-11 justifies current U.S. troop presence in 2023. And the first in that series was Syria. And I came to this floor, only got about 103 votes. But I made the argument that our troops were essentially sitting ducks, guarding oil extraction operations where their presence was known, where their location was easily identifiable. And I called for a withdrawal. That withdrawal was defeated. And then precisely what I predicted, more U.S. casualties from Iranian drones. That's what happened, exactly what I said would occur. And it is with no joy I say that. And I know all of us would take any policy position we could to reduce U.S. casualties. And I think this debate will present an excellent opportunity to reflect on Somalia in that light. There are currently 900 U.S. troops in Somalia, give or take, and this resolution would bring them home. Somalia is a country of 17 million, tortured at times by al-Shabaab, a group of roughly 7,000 hardened fighters and even more sympathizers. But to believe any of the arguments, just logically, that my colleagues are making, you have to believe that 900 U.S. troops is what is going to save a country of 17 million from a hardened group of 7,000. I think that strains not only logic, but our understanding of the history of Somalia, a country that has oscillated between failed state and just uh, absolute coup revolution over and over again, civil war, sectarian violence. The future of Somalia must be determined by Somalia. And to the extent that foreign influences could be helpful, I would argue that the African Union is far better positioned to build a stronger sense of national identity and national unity among clans that have been warring in Somalia for generations than U.S. troops. I have yet to see the evidence that U.S. troops are the essential element to fusing relationships among warring African warlords, clans, and tribes. Okay, I think we can stop there. I mean, this, this should have been the job of uh, Ilhan Omar, who is of Somali, she's a Somali American who has family who are, her clan is actually in government now. Uh, actually her first, I think I covered it. Her last husband is an advisor to the Somali president. And I think a little bit of history is in order before we present the um, opposition to Matt Gates's resolution, um, which is that 
the U.S. created this problem in Somalia, 100%. I mean, you can go back to U.S. military interventions and uh, to supposedly oust al-Qaeda from Somalia, the fighting in Mogadishu when Anthony Zinni said he didn't even care about the body count of Somali people. The constant intervention by the U.S. there was essentially stopped by al-Shabaab because al-Shabaab cleaned up the chaos. Al-Shabaab was simply a, a coalition of moderate and um, maybe a little more extreme Islamist groups that called themselves the Islamic courts when they came into government. They were extremely popular or in, in the, this was the post 9-11 era. And after stabilizing the country, the U.S. went to Ethiopia when it was under the control, I believe, of the TPLF, who are now out of government and the U.S. is backed in this other proxy war and essentially sent them in, sent their military in to remove the Islamic courts, install a fake government backed by the uh, African military command. They controlled a series of blocks in Mogadishu, basically a green zone. And al-Shabaab grew more extreme and more violent as they fought to return to power. And now the U.S. continues to fight al-Shabaab to maintain control over its government there was a popular leader, and Ann Garrison has written about this for us, Mohamed Farmajo, who was elected president in Somalia. The U.S. started to put pressure on him to call elections, and Ilhan Omar was leading the charge in her role on the Africa Subcommittee in the House Foreign Relate on the House Foreign Relations Committee, uh, while members of her family were waiting in the wings to serve for his successor. Farmajo wanted to create a Somali Coast Guard, which was independent of AFRICOM because the West is dumping uh, on Somalia's coast. Uh, the, there, it, there are also weapons flowing in and he was advocating for more sovereignty. Many people in the Somali diaspora considered him a legitimate anti-imperialist leader. And so he was forced out. And now this government is completely on board with what the U.S. is doing, and there's so much momentum in Washington and, well, in, at the Pentagon to ramp up U.S. troop presence. So what Matt Gates is doing here, coming from a district which is heavily represented by veterans in the Florida panhandle, is disrupting the U.S. plan to expand its presence in Africa. And, and um, well, let, let, let's play Ryan Zinke, who, former Secretary of Interior, now he's in Congress, uh, and his rationale for keeping troops in Somalia. Um, Aaron, I don't know if you can tee that yeah. up. because uh, Yes, I can. Uh, and Ryan Zinke, he is the Congress member who, during the vote in uh, I, over Syria. I, uh, okay, yeah. Well, well just, he said that uh, we have to fight uh, ISIS over there in Syria so we don't fight them over here. <laughs> well, this is a similar argument. Three minutes. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I rise in opposition, but I agree with my distinguished colleagues from Florida that Congress has an obligation to review it. Congress should not abrogate our responsibility. We should ask the tough questions. And ultimately, we should provide the funding necessary and the resources to win. That's our job, and I agree with you 100%. But as a commander, they are doing more than just guarding an embassy. A force structure of 900 may seem like a large footprint, 
But those of us who remember Black Hawk Down would suggest otherwise. <laughs> a force requires medevac. Those medevac require people that service those aircraft. In case we get in trouble, we need a quick reaction force, a force large enough to defend our troops. Because I, and like my colleagues, know that if you were to put any American serviceman in harm's way, we want to ensure we have the adequate force to make sure they're recovered safely. They also have to be fed communications. In order to have an effective force, you need a footprint that can do its mission. What I also agree with is that we should have a plan. Before we unplug our obligations, we should know what unplugging it does and when. And also, we should have a plan on what our obligations are. So much of this discussion is a discussion among similar views. But we do have an obligation for freedom. An obligation a commitment to democracy. And what democracy are they really building there? I mean, there, this is a deeply undemocratic system. Uh, I don't want to get into the details, but the U.S. is not allowing a full country vote, and it's keeping one. It's kept. Al-Shabaab out of power through force. But it's about freedom for Ryan Zinke, former Navy SEAL, energy industry guy from Montana, and he's on the military committee. I mean, he, I mean it's just a bunch of nonsense. It, all, of the, all he's saying is there's going to be an escalation. And Somalia obviously is, geo, is strategically important for the U.S. because of its location along the Red Sea and the Horn of Africa. There was just a major proxy war that finally seemed to have reached its end in Ethiopia. So that's what this is about. Um, Aaron, were you going to play something let else? Me, yeah, let me play for you guys uh, what Zinke said about back when Gates had a measure to withdraw U.S. forces from Syria, what Zinke said. The hard truth is this. Either we fight him in Syria or we'll fight him here. Oh, man. Either we fight and defeat them in Syria, or we'll fight in the streets of our nation. <laughs> you have to admire his confidence in both cases. Like, he's so sure of himself in advocating for staying in Syria and Somalia and in invoking the memory of Black Hawk Down. What is he talking about? So you want to have another, like, you want to replicate that whole thing where we uh, invade Somalia? and fight people in, in Somalia. Uh, it's, um, and his answer to that is to just basically send in more troops so that uh, there's, the US has a better chance this time. It's, anyway. Um, but, again, but again, how many times do we hear about the US occupation of Somalia and Syria? It only happens when US forces get hurt, especially in Syria. And uh, their policy is just to put you, young US forces in harm's way. But my question is, what is the, so we know the hegemonic goal in Syria, it's obvious it's to steal Syria's oil and wheat as multiple officials have openly expressed, expressed from Trump to Dana Struhl, who's now a senior official under Biden. What is the hegemonic interest in, in staying in Somalia? Well, it's, it's, it's geopolitics. And we actually published a great piece by Tim Coles, who wrote, 
I mean, he wrote a really important book about British involvement, military involvement in Africa, contemporary British military involvement, drawing on the history of British colonialism. But uh, I really would recommend for a deeper background, uh, this piece we published in August 2021 by TJ Coles or Tim Coles in Somalia, the U.S. is bombing the very quote unquote terrorists it created. It's a long piece. Um, and uh, I learned a lot from editing it. But it's about the Horn of Africa. I mean, the Horn of Africa is one of the most strategic places on the planet for trade, for waterways. It's like the South China Sea, or it's why the U.S. wants control of the Philippines. These are these are important trade routes where the U.S. needs complete control. Right. And uh, Ethiopia, I mean, you have a major dam project there, the Renaissance Dam, which is part of the Belt and Road Initiative, China's Belt and Road Initiative. And it's going to make Ethiopia a regional power, a mid-level power. I mean, Ethiopia has the capacity to be a kind of Turkey in the region. And the U.S. obviously isn't happy about that. It's old friends in the TPLF turn to them to try to destabilize this government and failed. But having a presence in Somalia has a presence in Djibouti as well. These are drone bases. This is where drone activity is taking place. And unfortunately, Gates's resolution didn't say anything about U.S. drone activity in Somalia. Ilhan Omar did pipe up to criticize the uh, failure to challenge the drone project, the, 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 the constant drone operations in Somalia. However, she made the absurd implication that President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed will eliminate al-Shabaab within a year. And what Gates was saying was, let's let, I mean, they're both saying, let's let this, the native Somali forces fight this fight. But it's absurd that that's going to happen. It's not going to happen. There needs to be a negotiation. Um, and, it, you know, Ilhan Omar just really not taking the lead and not saying anything of real significance here and letting Gates take the lead is kind of telling when this is her country. Uh, of course, and Zero Democrats co-sponsoring is also telling. It's, it's depressing. This was another edition of Gray Zone Radio. I've been your host, Max Blumenthal. To see more of our work and to sign up for our newsletter, visit thegrayzone.com. That's the G-R-A-Y zone.com. This episode was produced by Christopher Weaver. Christopher Weaver.